Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Audrey Davin, VP of Supply Chain Southeast Asia, Beauty and Wellbeing, the head of Supply Chain Philippines Unilever. Audrey is a supply chain and operations executive listed in the top 100 most influential women in supply chain in 2023. She holds a master's degree in food science, environment, and agricultural systems with 23 years worldwide experience in E2E &E supply chain management, operational and functional roles from local to global across Europe and Asia. I've asked Audrey to join us here today to share her story, plus help us understand the future of supply chain management, supply, and tech. Audrey, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Yeah, very fine. Thank yeah. you, Larry, for inviting me to join you today. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor and a pleasure for both of us. So I always like to start before we hop into the nuts and bolts of what you're doing now. How did you get into it? Were your parents in corporate? You've been involved in supply chain and corporate America, corporate America, the corporate world for most almost your whole career. So how did you even get started in this? Is this uh, actually I'm a daughter of a baker, it's a three generation of bakers. So my 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 father and my parents used to own a, a big two bakeries. So I was born in this environment of entrepreneurship, in the food business. So the full family was very much in. When I passed my my master, so the master in food science agriculture environment, so I had the chance to be like pre-recruited by Danon Group. At this period of time, there was a kind of selection of pre-selection of students in Europe. And I had this fantastic opportunity to join them. So the last two years of my studies, I was like studying and co-working in one of the company nearby my university. And that's how my corporate life started. Actually, not, not something I truly choose fundamentally. It was just right. an opportunity I took and I jumped in. Got it. Okay. And so you just jumped in and it was instant success right off the bat. You were just like a one hit, a prodigal child, or did you have to go through and learn different things? How did you even get into supply chain itself? So I did my thesis in, in Danone. I don't make that. It's not really an Alsace. There was a great topic on, in a factory in Alsace that is on the east border of east border of France in a brewery. Because at this period of time, Danone owned a brewing industry, brewing businesses named Cronenbourg, the leading factory, leading brand, I would say, in France. I worked there for my thesis, for my, my, my last work. And there I met my husband, actually. And what should have lasted, six months lasted 10 years. So um, I really enjoyed that. I became a brewer. It was not easy because I was one of those first ladies in a quite male. At this period of time, it was mainly a male world. The brewing industry was highly male. But the atmosphere of work was fantastic. I had a chance to learn. I had a lot to learn there. And started mm -hmm. really as a shop floor, like a kind of shift manager or production, first entrance production manager level. Nothing easy, but I really got fun. So I think that was a, has been key of success, really enjoying that, enjoying and be well surrounded by nice people and who helped me to develop myself there. Got it. So you started in a brewery. 
And that's where you learned the ins and outs of product and process engineering. And then what happened after that? I've always been very international. So very early in my younger age, I started to travel. It was more NGO kind of activity. It was truly NGO. So I've always been fascinated by international career and get to learn other culture around. So during industry, this period of time was really emerging in acquisition mode. Really, Danona sold Conombo business to a company named Scottish and Newcastle. So what has opened door on the international kind of opportunities that I was very happy to embrace. And then step-by-step, step, Scottish and Newcastle offers them some opportunities. Then Scottish has sold the business actually to Carlsberg and Heineken. I follow Carlsberg and that opened other doors. So I would say I had the chance to have different opportunities that I've decided to take or not. And it was always, I was always a next, nice next steps. Always challenging, always out of my comfort zone, I would say. It has not been a walk in the forest. Again, I'm, I was still in a world really male-led, but it became it became as well a promise and a kind of mission to, to show that a lady actually can succeed there. I had great mentor around me as well. Another lady, two ladies uh, I still clearly remember with a strong characters and we were very happy as well to, to be the first generation, I would say, of a female leader in this world. And so what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in progressing already? That's over what? That's over 10, that's 20 years of your career. That journey you just walked us through. What were some of the biggest challenges that you had to face? You mentioned it was tough because it was very male dominated. So how did you address that? And what other challenges did you feel you faced? Well, challenges were more, yeah, as everyone, get the right skills, be patient and build your foundation of technical know-how and accept that those things uh, takes time. It's something I used to say to younger generation, take your time, build your foundation, be strong in some area, build your expertise, your expertise, sorry. I would say the challenge more like when you grow, you build a family. It's about finding the right balance between work and life. Understand how you can drive a career while as well being the wife you want to be, the mother you want to be, the Mm. daughter you want to be, and not compromise or give up or sacrifice something. Learning I got from people around me is that when you start to move, fall into sacrifice mode, it doesn't last. At the point of time, you really have to take care of bringing the balance back. Yeah. To continue to succeed, to succeed professionally, but as well in, in life. Yeah, I really agree with that. I've always taken the belief. I saw a movie as a kid that really inspired me. This guy gets trapped living the same day over and over. He's a bad guy, a bit of a jerk. And he has this day and... He wakes up the next day and he's restarted the day he just had. And he's caught in like this time loop. And so, you know, the story is him like lashing out and trying to figure out what's going on. And then when he realizes he's stuck in the same day and he just submits to his fate, I think he realizes that his best thing to do is just make it the most amazing day ever. And so he just treats everyone super nice and all these kinds of things. He becomes an incredible person. And all of a sudden, one day he wakes up and it's the next day has arrived. And so I always, that made an impression on me as a kid. And I always felt like, what day would I have to live if I lived the same day every day of my life where I would love where I end up when I'm 80 years old? What would that 24-hour routine look like? And so I, the kind of, so we talk about finding work-life balance to be the person you want to be in your career, with your family. And I think it's very possible. It just requires creative thinking and and intent, like you have to design your life. Now you talked about developing skills. What are some of the most essential skills that you think 
for yourself and even your team to have people you work with now? I think in the world, since COVID specifically, one of the strong quality and skills we need to all acquire is the positivity. Be positive and be agile. I accept that things are not always like you would like it to be and, and drive the change. Not position yourself as a victim, but more as a player. As you mentioned rightly, you have to design your life, but you can as well design your work. You can design whatsoever. Of course, you have always a hierarchy that can decide a certain number of things for you. But even there, you know, there are some choices to be made that you can do. You can drive on your own. So I think it's all about agility and ownership and not position yourself as a victim. Especially in the world of supply chain, it's quite an intense world where there's a lot of pressure for the short term, but as well middle and long term. But short term, can, supply chain typically can be very much a fireman when, when products start to miss or when there are disruptions, as we have all experienced during COVID time. And then uh, this capacity to absorb all those shocks and uh, take positivity out of it, find solution and, uh, and take ownership of the problem, uh, fundamental skills. And we see that post-COVID, this requirement I still there, it didn't disappear with COVID. It's just the after COVID and our world will need really uh, with the climate changes and all the events that as a follow the COVID period, we still need from people either leader or even team members, to still behave the same way and to be very agile. So what are some of the like behavior? I mean, you mentioned this like positivity and that. Are there specific skills? Like, because that's a positivity is a behavior trait. And I think that's really important. And you talk about having like emotional resilience, right? To deal with a lot of these problems. Is there a specific handful of skill sets that you think are more valuable than others? Yeah. So... If you look at the specific skills, at least in the supply chain world, but it's uh, quite wide now in, in the society, all digital skills mm. are big, very mm. And uh, there is a high requirement, more than ever, I think, to uh, to learn and learn every day and be very humble in the way we are for the work. It's not because you have 20 mm. years seniority, like me, 20, 20 almost right. 25, that you can say, okay, I'm done. I know everything. Because actually, uh, the digital transformation, uh, the technology development are all around us at an extremely fast pace. Yeah. Fast pace. And actually, it's almost impossible to follow it. So that mm-hmm. means you can... F- make sure that you learn some of those things but now the speed of development of all those things is so fast yeah that uh, you cannot absorb everything so one of the skills actually is to be a good learner and to be open mm-hmm. to learn it's it's a fundamental yeah that for sure 100 percent, 100 percent. i agree with that i think einstein said the level of thinking that got you where you are today will not get you to where you want need to go next when there's a, I quote this a lot, Karl Popper was one of the best science educators and he had a formula for the scientific method, P1 plus TS plus EE equals P2. And that's problem one plus temporary solution plus eliminate errors equals problem two. And the idea is that you have a problem, you come up with a temporary solution, then you have to eliminate the errors and you eliminate the errors by experimentation, observation, research, discussion, debate, and you either solve the problem and your temporary solution is now the permanent solution and you've arrived at P2, or you still have the problem, but you've learned something new and you need a new temporary solution. And it's a cyclical kind of thing. And so it's the same thing. Like once we get where we're going, we're now at problem two. We solved that one. Now we're the next one. 
Do you feel supply chain is the same sort of way? Once you solve a problem, a new one seems to appear almost inevitably? I would not say that. In general, supply chain people are good planner and are good risk assessor. And I don't think that any business leader would accept that the supply chain creates a problem by solving one. So there is a kind of scientific aspect in supply chain that makes that the sum of rational helps to solve solution. And we try to, to make it definitive. Of course, everything evolves. So what is true today is not true tomorrow. So we have to endless look at what has been created or what, which processes has been put in place. Is it still relevant? Yes or no? And be always in a continuous improvement path because as the environment is evolving, technology are evolving, competition is evolving, and our consumer needs and expectations are evolving. If you look at e-commerce, the supply chain is completely, has completely changed with all those, this big boom of the e-commerce. Right. We definitely don't supply goods on those channels the same way that we supply goods on the others. So it's a permanent recreation. So it's uh, not that we create new problem, it's that new and the environment is evolving. So new problem appear and then all models are not valid anymore. Then we have to adjust. Yeah, that's a great example. The e-commerce versus retail. People like being able to order things with a couple of clicks. This almost reminds me of what happened between Blockbuster and Netflix. So Blockbuster used to be a multi-billion dollar company. I think they're, they posted like on average from four to six billion dollars per year as their top line revenue. They could have hired the best talent in the world. They could have developed any technology. They had the opportunity to buy Netflix at one point and passed. And Netflix was a small startup, I believe it was out of the UK, where they just delivered movies to your house, almost like you would order pizza. You would have a catalog and you would order the movie and they would deliver it to you and then pick it up, essentially. And that was hyper convenient. And Blockbuster just felt they didn't need to compete with that. They lost touch with the market. They were like, no, people like our stores. They like coming in after a long day of work and standing for another 30 minutes to pick out of the 50 titles, the paralysis by analysis. And then they enjoy the late fees when they don't get back to the store to draw. Like they're just so disconnected from the reality. And, and so this small startup just crushed Blockbuster and eventually drove them out of business. So I think what you're talking about, constant learning and innovating, and being aware of the tra- changing trends, I think that's very relevant in today's day and age. This might seem like a silly question, but how does how do geopolitics play into the supply chain management side of things? I would say that supply chain is directly impacted by the geo- geopolitical conflicts in the world. So if you take Ukraine, some of the raw material come from there. So if there is a war there or there in different countries, you get short in supply. One of the action, of course, is to have always multiple sourcing and make sure that if something wrong happens somewhere, you have a backup. Yeah, yeah. It's what we call the resilience in supply chain. Resilience, um, I like that. Yeah, resilience. So it's, I think most of the big companies, most of, the, I guess, even the smaller one, have multiple sourcing options now, especially since COVID, the need has become very obvious. The models were much more, I would say, during decades, supply chain leaders were doing the opposite around. That means centralized. It was right. like globalization uh, was really yeah. everyone was globalization, having- centralization, creation of very big factories, very big hub, where all the goods were supposed to go in and out uh, to be very cost effective. We know now that this model has to be mitigated and actually for resilience purpose. So in case of one, tro- one if something happened wrong in the one of your central place, you are not killing your business, number one. 
And, and as well, sustainability starts to play a big role because all those very centralized places means a very long logistic journey. So you are less agile, but you as well have a higher CO2 footprint. Those models are very much changing and to come back to more local for local. Right. Yeah. I, we always say the worst number in business is one. One key employee, one key supplier, one main product, one customer. One, yeah. One, all that one is a terrible number in, in businesses to a certain extent. So multiple sourcing and resilience, the geopolitical arena, that's where you build in redundancies and resilience in it. How is, in some ways, you talked about e-commerce too. Can you speak to a little bit to the trends of just in time versus stocking inventory? Like you talked about before, the old model was you have a warehouse full of stuff and you bring some of it out, put it on the shelf when you re-up your supply every so often, but that has to be balanced with the cost of the manufacturing and economies of scale. But for a lot of people, you talk about e-commerce. For e-commerce, it's very convenient for them to have just-in-time delivery. So can you speak to that a little bit? What do, Is one trend winning out of another? Is there a balancing act between that? Is it you should always keep a 30-day supply on hand just in case, but then resupply just in time? Is there, is there a strategy for a listener who's maybe, maybe they do have a business that's dependent on international supplies? I think it depends on the type of product you sell. Just in time, for example, automotive industry is, is very, I would say, normal, popular way of working. You don't stock because anyway, you would need a really extremely big warehouse if you would have to stock all the parts of a car, for example. In a world where the demand is fluctuating a lot, so let's say e-commerce, when you have this massive promotion online, it's very hard to predict exactly how much you will sell. So there are a lot of artificial intelligence tools behind or uh, tools that are uh, human brain behind or analyzing data and learning from the past event to try to predict as much as possible what should be the demand. And uh, But there is always a variation. You can never be super accurate. And of course, if you miss the ball, if you stock too much, it will cost you a bit of, uh, it will cost you not a bit, it will cost you cash. So it has a financial impact. And if you stock too little, then you miss sales. So you don't do not grow the way you would like to grow. So there is what we call a cost, cash, and service triangle that has to be evaluated for each businesses and understand, okay, where my business and this part of my business, or perhaps this channel, if we call to talk to about e-com, there are many channels. What is the right model? How accurate is my demand forecast? Um, how fast I can produce, how big I can produce, how small I can produce. So that's mean what's my capacity to produce small and quickly. So all those parameters uh, make a very quite a complex tool, I would say, that helps to figure out what is the best inventory. Of course, supply chain leaders are all in those stories and discussion about inventory. It's one of our key roles is to guarantee the lowest cost with the lowest inventory at the best service level and uh, help a business to flourish. It is not a simple question. Yeah. Would you, do you have any recommendations to anyone who might be starting out or struggling? Either they're a business owner themselves or they're working with a company. And I'm, you said the triangle was cost, cash, and service. Yep. Okay. And it's trying to find the ideal balance between all of those. Yeah. Right. The cost for production, cash that I guess, cash your inventory. Ah, and then obviously, like you said, being able to the service. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Would you have any advice for anyone that's starting out or struggling? 
on cost caution service triangle. I think you have to start where is the starting point and the starting point is your forecast. So it's all about planning. It's really the starting point that will help you to, to unlock service and cash. And then cost is somehow a bit of a separate story uh, with a manufacturing world. So less of a planning, more manufacturing world. And of course, the intersection will be the capacity to produce in small and fast. There are multiple models. I think this is such a very important topic. Many references can be found either in two suppliers that are flourishing, and but also in all supply chain library. It's a fundamental of supply chain, and it's a key role that supply chain people have to play. Okay, I think that's good. So the place if someone is starting out or struggling is to really lean into your demand forecasts. And there's lots of tools that they can find. There's everything probably from even like Google Trends. Putting your keywords into Google Trends and looking at the last five years history or more might be able to tell you what cycles may exist in your industry or for that specific product. If it's got a specific name, if it's, there's a name that you can look up like, like Pringles or something like that, you can probably use a tool like that to at least give you a guiding. And then from those demand forecasts, then it sounds like you're going to need to balance out everything else. So what are in your corporate journey and climbing, obviously you work with a lot of other people. How do you handle that? Because everyone's vying to climb the ladder as well. Everybody wants more recognition and a bigger salary and that sort of thing. And over the years, you've seen probably all sorts of social games being played. Do you have any recommendations in that regard to someone that's in the corporate world. You've survived such a long time. You've consistently almost, it almost seems with very clear intent, just climbed up. Can you speak to that a little bit? You cannot be, expect that you are, you can extract you from this world. Yes, it cooperates are many people, there are some political games, depends really much on the culture of the company actually. I think what is very important is to have few person you can trust in and have your cycle of influence and trust. So who are those persons? Be very clear on who you have to serve, who can help you, and with who you need to have strong collaboration and really invest a good time to maintain this, this network. You cannot hope to be popular and loved by everyone. <laughs> so it's really stay focused. Uh, what I used to say to my team is uh, be very clear on what we want to achieve. So I like to really repeat again and again, what is our purpose, why we are here, what is our main goal for the year or the next two, three years and, and stay focused, keep good relationship between this, the team working together, team mindset, and, and don't forget to be kind. Mm. <laughs> Leader influence a lot to the people behavior below them. If there are political game in your team, you may question if you do not play yourself a political game. People don't start to play just like this proactively. They imitate the leader. If between leaders you manage to avoid that there are a political game and that the communication is transparent and you really play a team game, then people, the entire team will behave like that. Yeah, important to join when you join a company or when you, you take a new role, it's important to know with who you will work and if there is a competitivity in that sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You reminded me of the story. I heard about a rowing team, like a dragon boat racing team, and they wanted to win. I don't remember what it was, like the gold medal, the world championship. And so the coach thought that the team needed to work better in sync, in like in synchronicity. So they got a meditation coach and the coach would teach them to be in sync and harmonize together and all that. And when they went back the next year, they bombed. They've completely failed. They had terrible time. 
is because the team was more focused on being in harmony than winning the race. They were more focused on having no friction amongst each other than crossing the finish line first. And so they were very well synchronized. They were in harmony, but there was no, there, they didn't, it sounds so it just made me think of focus on the goals. Progress can be messy. Friction is not necessarily a bad thing, but I love that you said, do your best to be kind, to work with compassion, but ultimately it's about crossing that finish line and achieving those goals. I really, I really like that. But it was like, we need to get along, but you're not going to, I love that you're just really candid in the sense of you're not going to get along with everybody. Let's stop the fantasy world right now about singing Kumbaya. Just be kind, deal with compassion and just keep everyone focused on the goals. And it may be clumsy. It may feel clumsy to a certain respect, but ultimately, as long as your, your eyes are on the prize and you deal with people with compassion it should all work out. Is that a fair summary of what you said? Would you agree? Yeah, you said very nicely. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. Hey. But in any way, way, it's only when you pass the finish line. In my experience, we have sometimes gone through very challenging program or goal to achieve very challenging one. Of course, there are conflicts, there are frictions. People don't go along as everyone. It can happen that there is things not happen well, as you plan. At the end of the day, when you pass the finish line, everybody is proud. And then suddenly everybody love each other. And you're yep. so happy that, oh, we have done that together. We have yep. achieved that together. Yeah. And as soon as you reach this point that there is a common promise to have achieved something big together as a team, then the game completely changes. And you can be tr- sure that the next big challenge will be much easier. Much yeah, easier. yeah, yeah. So well said. It's like building confidence in the team and just... Improving through iterations. What a concept. I think that's fantastic. And so where do you see the future of things going in supply chain? We have a lot of geopolitical things that are happening right now. We have a lot of policies by unelected uh, organizations in the world that are pushing agendas, like the United Nations and that. Unelected officials that feel certain things should be everyone's priority. We have geopolitical issues, and we have emerging technology that's on the scene as well. So it's an interesting time to be alive. There have been lots of interesting times to be alive throughout history, but this is a particularly interesting one. What do you think things are like? Where do you think things are going? Talking about planning, what do you see in your periscope if we look 10, 20 years down the road? If you look at supply chain specifically, but I can answer for wider scope. I think supply chain has a big role to play in the world of tomorrow because a lot of things related to technology are linked actually to what we produce and the way we produce it and with what deforestation is because we need those resources to, to produce what we need uh, to consume pollution during the manufacturing steps, during the distribution step, during the consumption step of what we sell. All those things are really highly linked to supply chain and come to supply chain hands to try to find a solution. And the t- it's supply chain, but it's perhaps unfair. It is unfair because actually we see that how much we need as well other function. We need to influence politics. We need to lobby. We yeah. need to uh, talk to regulatory affairs to understand uh, are they going to have law to that will uh, change part of the game that will bring competition to equal base because even. Even if everyone wants to reduce pollution and so on, it has a cost. Today, the fact is that produce cost-free, pollution-free or CO2 zero, zero, zero footprint, no plastic, no this, no that, it has a cost. The fact is that consumers today are not really willing to pay for this additional cost. So 
we really try to zero as much as possible. And I think it's by a company who has to work together or institution has to work together to come to a common end check that makes that everyone do it. Because what happens if one company does it, but not the other one? It's create a uncompetitive situation. That's right. Your product right. becomes too expensive. Nobody buy it. So what right. are you doing? <clears throat> so somehow it's a full society move. And it cannot be like done very brutally. We observe a step-by-step fashion. Oh, one law here on a recyclable plastic, one new technology, one company implement a new technology for reducing pollution. So let's see how it works. We work a lot of on finding a good business case to switch from one source of energy to another one. And all those things move in parallel and progressing. What I'm very happy to observe is that those things are moving fast. Uh, mm. We have never seen such a fast development of new technology and see so many companies investing in that, investing in sustainability. If you look at the World Economic Forum as well, you will see all those innovations. It's never stopped. It's never stopping. So what gives me really a, a full hope that the world of tomorrow will be uh, much more clean and much better. Because there is a sense of urgency that we all feel. Huh? The climate change is, is very visible now, and we all, uh, many countries suffer of it. It's provoked an acceleration, and technology there. Uh, it has never been as fast as possible, uh, as today. Mm. So supply chain, enlarged supply chain, will play a crucial role there to implement the solution very quickly and change models. You imagine that the, the impact on all we do at each step is huge. Yeah. So I think for supply chain people is extremely exciting. I think there has never been such an exciting time for to join a supply chain, even it's challenging. But if you take the sustainability agenda, the digital agenda, the artificial intelligence agenda, all the data captures and so on, the change, the uh, evolvement of a uh, normal channel like retail to e-commerce and so on, everything is moving. So it's a very exciting world to to come in. Do you, this is a question, I didn't, this is a little bit of a sideball question. How do you feel this fits into supporting the middle class and small and medium-sized business owners? Some of this stuff, you talk about getting involved in politics and that, it, it feels beyond a small or medium-sized business. If they're making less than a hundred million a year, can they really afford to lobby some of those things? Maybe through an association, I agree with that. But I agree with you, like you talk about deforestation and that's a real thing, but I'm in the data capture, you have big data, AI, there's, it's the landscape of this stuff. It's not an even playing field. One of the things we witnessed during COVID was the greatest transfer of wealth that we've seen. And without the middle class, without small and medium-sized businesses, it was a world of kings and peasants. And so in some ways, like I, I agree hundred percent with what you're saying. I'm curious to what you're seeing in terms of these trends. And in terms of small and medium-sized businesses, do you think this is going to create more monopolies and giant corporate entities that are, you look at, I don't even want to say his name, but there's certain people with lots of money that are doing things like buying up all the farmland in the world, for example. Meanwhile, small farmers are being pushed off of theirs, like in the Netherlands type of thing. So there's a big push of certain industries, big agriculture, these sorts of things. Can you speak to that a little bit? And you, when you look through your periscope there into the future. So I'm not familiar with all you have mentioned, but I think the small and middle-sized company, if they cannot invest necessarily in looking for new technology or trying or piloting or prototyping something or, or lobbying, they can, of course, join all kind of association. 
And they can as well benefit as soon as something has been created, then you can buy it, you can use it. I think as well, all the small and bigger and middle-sized players, they are, they are as well local for local most of the time. So what's a low most of the time as well to have a more premiumization of what they product. There are people who want to buy a local mm. and then there's a marketing advantage that perhaps a big company may not have because they are, they are smaller and then perhaps it creates a bigger value perceptions. So I don't, I think, yes, there's a resource to invest perhaps in research or partnership, yeah, new technology, prototyping and so on is at a smaller scale, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible. I, I've worked and yeah. seen many smaller companies like suppliers spe- specialized in one special area, capable absolutely to invest in yeah. something, new technology, in a new material, and they will find a niche market where they can do their own journey. So mm-hmm. I don't think that we can say, oh, it's only the story of big, of big company. And it's not true. It's not what is happening. We see that there are initiatives everywhere. And all those new technology, many startups start with almost nothing. There are mm-hmm. a lot of fund crowdfunding, a way to, to get finance to start something. What I observe is that it happened at all scale, small and big. Fair enough. I agree with everything that you said. I, I think... The message from your answer is to pursue excellence in what you're doing, because if you do it, there was no political debate about indoor plumbing. There were no protests. There was no lobbying about having flushing toilets. People are like, this is great. I don't have to keep it in a bucket that smells in my corner of my room. Like I can just push a button and it's gone. So I think you're right in the sense that just pursuing excellence is in itself maybe a hedge against that. It's funny you mentioned that because we talked about our research. I think I maybe mentioned it to you in the meet and greet. A lot of my listeners, regular listeners of the show know about the study that we did. And one of the things when it came to money management in a company was R&D spending. That's, that is direct because you got to stay, you got to innovate. You got to innovate your processes, your systems, your product. You have to invest in asset growth and high quality products and services. Everyone's constantly trying to make a better mousetrap. So I agree with what you're saying. I think there's, it's, I appreciate your insight on that. So next, I kind of want to ask then about some of the habits that you feel are most important on like a daily, weekly, quarterly basis. You've talked about skills, you've talked about certain behaviors, but in terms of a company that's trying to have robust supply chain management, is there any sort of habits that you feel are really important to do it at a high level very well on a regular basis. What I mean is there's how often are you doing your demand forecast? Are these something that should be updated daily by the minute, by the hour? Are there other things that need to be done on a consistent regular basis you think in order to perform well? Depending on the topic, you of course set up a different governance model. So again, for each of your fundamentals, you need to have a very, so that's mean your function, keyword produce, uh, support for supply chain, of course, it's planning, the logistics, fulfill the demand, uh, your sales, forecast, and so on, your cost, your security, your safety, your quality, all those things have their own governance system, their own standard and their own governance system. And it has to be a very strong discipline to guarantee that you do not derail. So have the right standards in place, make sure that people are well trained and know about the standards and execute it properly and track the progress and the progress and as well simply the performance are in a very regular base. But depending on the topic, it can be weekly, it can be monthly, it can be quarterly, it can be so each topic deserves its own governance of the principle. It's a it's a very important. So it's a it's a question of high discipline. 
of course, it's valid for all the fundamental I have mentioned. And of course, after it's ad hoc, if you work on a specific project or a program, something that is more innovative and so on, then you may have to create your own base and your own governance. But in everything you do, and because in supply chain, we are a great planner, it's fundamental to have a plan and to start with the plan and with the team who will be there, who will be, who will be responsible of what, who will decide of what. So that is part of the plan actually and have the right tracking in place. It's, that's how planners work. I know it may sound almost military in a, a other part of the world, but in supply chain, this is very much how we manage the things. Everything is well planned uh, yeah. and there's a clear stakeholder management and a clear timing and a clear governance and everything is very uh, under control, I would say. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. For us in our research, supply chain touches on everything from the strategic plan business operations, business intelligence, and market intelligence. Those are really, the out of our eight critical success factors, those are the ones that they really touch on because you have to know, you have to have scenario building for alternatives, right? That has to be based off your market intelligence, which you talked about having your demand forecast. You need to have, be able to compare that to actual, and that requires your business intelligence to be in place. And all of this has to be communicated and organized throughout the organization, which is all business operation stuff your meeting rhythms, your cybersecurity, your, right? Like the training programs on how to make sure that people are aware of this stuff, how often they look at this stuff. And like I mentioned, how often it updates. So I agree wholeheartedly. And I really like that you emphasize discipline in it as a core core basis. I think that is critically important. And the fact of the plan, the, you have to have the plan and the projections and then measure against real performance. And then it sounds like follow the data. Is that a fair estimate, so to speak? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Audrey, you've been so forthcoming and giving in this call. I really appreciate your time here and the information you've shared. I've got a page of notes here. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Do you want to work in supply chain, Darren? <laughs> I want to. I think we do. I think it's a, I think in this day and age, even perfect example. I mentioned before the call, we did a little like, what are you grateful for? And I was, one of the things I said I'm grateful for is I've got 10 to 15 proposals that I have to send out. And one of them came up yesterday and it was, it's a guy that, you know, he's trying to build a team out here and he's having a hard time. Most companies that I talk to now, they're not necessarily like 12 people in an office on this street at, at this address. It's, oh, we've got 12 people and three of them are in this country and four of them in that. So on its own, even just labor, and you think about holidays and religious, cultural considerations. I'm in the Philippines right now. Here, they have a 13th month. If you've never hired in the Philippines, you may be in for surprise when at the end of the year, all your staff are expecting a 13th month of pay. And so there's all these considerations that, you know, that whether it's from products that you're trying to ship, or even if it's labor, human resource, uh, even things like power outages. They're talking about, I know right now, to help achieve these some of these insane goals about having regularly scheduled brownouts in California. What is that? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? It's just an interesting time, like I say, to be alive. I think we all work in supply chain management, to be honest, at this point, whether we realize it or not. Even the family that's getting their groceries, what's in season versus what isn't? Where are the wildfires this time of year? Who's released genetically modified experiments in which state or which country that may impact? Like, it's just, there's just, it's just wild. So I think we all are. And then some companies can afford to have specialists that really focus on that part of the business. 
to help prevent issues. And then some companies don't, and it's, it's almost, it's like the small business owner. It's got three staff and all staff are wearing five hats versus a bigger organization that has specialists for each piece of the process. And so I think that's really the scale of it. So I think, sorry for the long-winded thing, but I think I work in, we, we both work in supply chain management. And that's part of why I wanted to bring you on. Clearly you've got a ton of experience. You work with a big name brand. Um, you may have access to tools and insights that other people don't. And we're not trying to get any trade secrets out of you, but just general rules of thumb. And I thought you did a great job on this call. Or there's some people that I think there's something here for a beginner, something here for intermediate, uh, and definitely some people that maybe are more advanced as well. I think they would have enjoyed your insights on the future and the trends that are emerging and at least gone, gotten some ideas for rabbit holes to go down, whether it's data capture or sustainability or politics or just digitizing of everything. So I thought it was great. I really appreciate your time here. I know you've got a lot of direct reports. I know you've recently, I don't think, I don't, I didn't even know. I know that recently you were nominated top 100 influential women in supply chain. So I know you've got a lot going on. Thank you for coming here and sharing with my audience and my people, knowing that you have so much on your plate already. And I definitely think this call is going to help some people. So thank you. Thank you, Derek. My pleasure.